It's another edition of the legendary Book and Film Globe podcast, your one-stop shop for all things books and film and streaming TV and so much more. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the editor of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We have a typically uh, diverse array of topics to discuss this week. I'm going to speak with Paula Schaefer about the reboots of two sitcoms that are ongoing. After 30 years, Night Court is back on NBC. We'll talk about that and also talk about that 90s show, which used to be that 70s show and really is still that 70s show, but set in the 90s. And that's on Netflix. We'll talk about what with them. And we're also going to talk to the legendary Susie Bright, a new contributor for us, about women talking. Sarah Polly's Oscar-nominated film, which is in theaters now and will be probably at least until March when the Oscars appear. But first, Stephen Garrett and Sarah Stewart are Rotten Tomatoes-approved film critics are back from the Sundance Film Festival, both in person and virtually, and we're going to talk about the diverse offerings at this year's Sundance right after this self-produced musical interlude. The Sundance Film Festival is back in person, or was back in person last week, and Stephen Garrett was there in person, and Sarah Stewart was there online, because it's also available online now. We have uh, film festivals you can see any way you, uh, you choose, whether you want to wait in line in Park City or sit in the comfort of your own, own home and, and watch the movies. And Stephen and Sarah are here with me now to talk about what went down at Sundance this year. Hello, guys. Hello. Yes, Rotten Tomatoes approved film critics everywhere on Book and Film Globe. Uh, Stephen... So you were you were actually in Park City. You went That's right, to boots on the ground. I was there. Freezing my ass you had a condo, like yep. or, or with with some probably six other uh, just like critics. old times, just like old times. Yeah, there were five of us all together. It was very pre-pandemic. We all yeah. like made sandwich. We went to the Albertsons and got groceries. We were oh like, wow, that sounds exciting. You're in it, man. Wow, you went to all you went to all the best parties at the Albertsons. So all right, oh, yeah. so. So what was it? What was going on in in Park City this year? What uh, was going on? Well, uh, a lot of people. Movies were back. Movies yeah. back. Yeah. Um, very crowded. It was very interesting. Okay, so two trends. The first was at the public screenings, back to normal. Everything was like a mob scene as it normally is, um, et cetera, et cetera. It couldn't have felt more annoying and also kind of wonderful. Uh, the press and industry screenings absolutely cratered. Like. Never full, and they used to be mob scenes. And Sarah, I'm sure you'll attest to that. Like okay. you'd have to show up for P and I screenings like an hour before, especially for a hot title. You know, it was always this fevered like, will I get in? Won't I get in? Because it's not ticketed; it's just first come, first serve. Never. I was showing up five minutes late just so that I wouldn't have to see the land acknowledgement trailers and the five different Sundance trailers that they have in front of the <laughs> movies, which is like a full ten minutes. It's fine the first couple of times, but if you're seeing 20 or 30 movies, you're like, yeah, yeah, I get it. I, I'll just show Oh, it gets play. stuck in your head, that theme they play every time. Yeah. Uh, so it was weird. It was weird. There What's was up with that? Like, on the one hand, it's the online stuff. And it's the fact mm. that suddenly people were making that choice of like, all right, what am I going to invest the time to actually schlep to a theater to see? And what am I cool to just watch online? So the small films, the documentaries, those were the ones that people weren't necessarily showing up for, certainly in the P&Is. Public screenings, you know, I think everybody's in it to win it. If they pay to show up, they're going to see whatever the hell they can see. But online, it was a little more curated. You know, I, I think because of the online thing, the in-person was a little more curated. And weirdly enough, so they have this thing where 
and Sarah, you might remember this too, right? They, they will shoot uh, footage the day before, and then you'll see a trailer for the festival that features what just happened the day before. Yeah, like, it's yeah. very cool. So this was, then they refresh it every day. The last day that I was at screenings, I left on Wednesday and saw, I was at a bunch of movies on Tuesday. They were already, there was one where they were interviewing people like, so what movies can't you wait to see online? Like, what movies are you going to mm. see when you go home? So it was already kind of like, yeah, we know you guys are going to watch movies online. It's not going to be here at the festival. Uh, so let's get you excited about logging on and continuing the festival after you've left Park City. Huh. Very, yeah. very odd. I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense. I mean, it's. I, I think that people are the number of people who are afraid to go to the movies because they're going to get sick is, is pretty much close to zero at this point. But, you know, it is, there, it's time and investment, right? You got to, you got to fly there or drive, you know, you, have, sure. you have to, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's money if you're yeah. not on someone's payroll. And it's also, you know, for those of us, I'm going to chime in for the lazy people, those of us who don't want to wait in hour long lines outside movies. It's a really great development that I can't stop beating the drum for enough. Sure. Yeah, sure. you know, and again, like you know, we all, all, most of us have large TVs at this point, and um, with good sound systems. So you know, there's some movies that you really want to see in, in in theaters, but a lot of the stuff that premieres at Sundance is are quieter. They're documentaries, they're indie films that you know can stand up to the rigors of a TV living room viewing, right? Um, absolutely, absolutely. A, and a lot again, of people I've talked again, to watch. Well, and also, like, the sum total is people are seeing more movies, which is, I think, yeah. should be the ultimate goal. Like, sure. mm-hmm. people I know, uh, and Sarah, like, you probably feel this way too, right? Like, we've, we've probably seen 10%, 20% more movies than we normally might have if we were just going and schlepping to movie theaters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you for know, sure. Don't you feel? Like, it's, it's great. So for it's sure. great from that point of view. For sure. But, um, but there's a real ambivalence. I know that there, like, for example, so this was an interesting kind of inside baseball industry thing. Where the festival, um, if you were in competition, you need to be, you need to agree to have your film online. There were some distributors like A24 with some of their films, one uh, called Past Lives in particular. Um, they said, we don't want this online. We only want it in theaters. And they said, okay, fine. You can't be in competition. We'll have you as a premiere. So one of the conditions of being in competition is you had to agree to be online as well as in theaters, you know, at, in person. Um, but there are some films and some distributors who were like, nope, we don't want this to be online. You know, this is a conscious decision. We only want it in theaters. Well, you know, I also okay. think, I mean, in the case of Past Lives, they sort of benefited from this exclusivity of showing it only in person. I, I've seen nothing raves about it. And I think that the word of mouth is probably going to be worth more to them potentially than an award at Sundance. So isn't that interesting? That's a weird, interesting way to, to play the, the game, right? Yeah, for sure. To play the fair game. I'm sorry, not to interrupt, but just to to, fill, uh, to, to, to springboard into uh, one of the films, Sarah, that you're going to talk about, Fair Play. Fair Play played so well with an audience. I have to say, like, there were gasps, there was oohs and ahs. This is a, like a sexy sort of um, steamy thriller romance gone bad. Um, and people applauded at the end. And when it got picked up, it got picked up for $20 million by Netflix. And one of the interviews I read, one of the articles I read about the pickup was that everybody agreed there needed to be some theatrical presence for the movie. Ryan Johnson is an executive producer. And I think he said, look, I've already hammered out the template, you know, with the Glass Onion. Even if it's just for a week, we're going to play in AMC theaters. You know, hopefully it can be a few hundred screens. Um, and I think a movie like Fair Play will benefit from that more than it would if people just saw it online at home. But 
Sarah, what what do you think of that? With that, film? well, I think I mean, first of all, Ryan Johnson knows what he's talking about because every <laughs> single person in America watched Glass Onion when it went on Netflix. It was just there at the exact right time, and we all watched it. But uh, yeah, I, I'm actually I'm really sad not to have seen Fair Play with an audience. That's one of the few ones that I think I would have really benefited from seeing with the crowd. And I just I love an erotic thriller. There you know haven't been nearly enough of them, and this movie was so just trashy in the best way it was so enjoyable and i really would have loved to have heard people around me reacting to it uh yeah. i you know i i think it's uh arguably the best performance i've seen ever from alden ehrenreich who i I've he can act that I'm apparently yeah. He can, yeah he can act nice yeah yeah he's playing a kind of increasingly like toxic wall street bro and uh, and Phoebe, help me out with her last name, Stephen. Do, oh God, do you know I, I can't. I don't. I don't know. Don't, I'm going to say Phoebe Dynamore. That's just. I'm go. gonna Phoebe from Bridgerton is. Phoebe uh, from is, Bridgerton is better. Yeah. Is the female lead? Uh, they are a Wall Street couple who have this sort of under wraps romance while they're both junior analysts, and then she, they think he's going to get promoted, but she gets promoted, and it starts this whole gender war between them. And in a way, it's like. You know, it feels very much like a throwback to Wall Street with a sort of new take on gender politics. Um, well, that sounds yeah. good. Sounds There's good. Just a, it, it's great. It's great, yeah. and it starts out. You know, it, it just it starts out with a with a real bang sexually mm-hmm. with this scene uh, <laughs> of them going out in a bathroom, resulting in both of them just being covered in blood, which is obviously mm. a harbinger of. Very relatable. Um, very relatable. Uh, very relatable to us all, and uh, it it just. Yeah, it just jumps in and never stops. And what a, All right, what a so, delight. So, that's, so that's fair play. We should be looking out for that. That's obviously going to be something that people see. What are some other movies from this year that you think have a chance to um, break break big into the non-film uh, festival going public? Well, well you know, I, one... Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead, ahead sir. Well, I was yeah. just going to say... Flora and Son is another one that's an absolute charmer. It's by the guy who did once, John Carney, this Irish uh, director. And, you know, it's, first of all, Irish people in a romantic comedy that's musical. It's incredibly charming. It's very right down the middle. You see where things are going to go. It's, you know, but it's still very satisfying. It's musical. It's people break out into song, like, like in Sing Street. No, well... It's about a woman who uh, is a um, single mother, but still very young, had her kid young, and is trying to connect with her son, so she buys him a guitar. He says, you know, I don't want it, you know, leave me alone. So she ends up taking guitar lessons, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt is the guitar teacher, but he's, like, they do it over Zoom, and he's in uh, L.A., she's in Dublin, and they fall in love, and Mm -hmm. they fall in love talking about music and what music means to them and what is the nature of a song and what makes a good song. And it's kind of delightful and kind of... My wife and I fell in love. It's so funny. Right? I think they changed the names, but it's your story. Yeah. Uh, Apple picked it up for $20 million, so Mm. they'll give it some sort of push. So they'll put it on Apple TV Plus where no one will see it. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Great. Good. That sounds good. All right. What else we got? Polite society. I'm oh, yeah. advocate oh, for yeah. polite society. I just so wonderful from start to finish. It is just this weird mashup of genres. I mean, it's essentially a romantic comedy. It centers around these two British, uh, Indian British sisters. Um, the younger of whom is in high school. 
uh, really wants to become a stunt woman. Her parents want her to be a doctor. Um, and her older sister is this art school dropout who gets kind of swept off her feet by this uh, scientist, this handsome scientist dude who's kind of shopping for a wife. And her younger sister like sees that something might be amiss. So she's trying to get in between them. And it manages to be sort of Jane Austen-esque in the relationship between the sisters and the sort of marriage-mindedness of the parents. And then meanwhile, it just brings in all of these martial arts tropes for the younger sister. It has these big, bold, yellow chapter titles. It has this maniacal, uh, like, villain mother-in-law. The mother-in-law is played by uh, Shora... Agashard Lou, I don't, um, and I never can pronounce the yes, name, yes. but from The Expanse and yes. other other places, and and she is she is a magnetic uh, screen figure to say the least. Yes. Wonderful I, I, villain, and yes. there's just a scene in this movie where she it, it, she brings the younger girl in for a spa day at her mansion and turns the leg waxing into like this sort of torture scene, which is <laughs> yeah. just hilarious. It, it's just everything is infused with like humor and violence and just over the top dramatics and it just kind of like everything everywhere yeah. it gives I, you I, I watched the trailer online i haven't seen it yet but I, it looked to me like this year's everything everywhere it's got like a, yeah. a, a cross genre appeal and it's got a multi-ethnic cast um and I, I think it has a chance that that movie in particular looks to me to have, have a chance to be a sort of a, a big um uh, crossover hit between sort of indie yeah audiences and mainstream audiences i hope for so sure. there's yeah. also there's a film called theater camp which is basically waiting for guffman but for you know like you know circuit 2023 with uh, ben platt as the the main kind of name person um okay. but you know it's it's basically like it's kids that go upstate upstate new york go to theater camp and uh you know the the trope is that you know it's it's the the, the founder of it is in a coma and they need to like find the money to keep it open or it'll close and it's it's very silly and very dumb and very funny. And the music is actually much better than it needs to be. Like the music and lyrics are much smarter and much funnier than you would think. And it's really sweet. And, and Searchlight picked that up. They they picked it up here at debut without a distributor. So I think they'll probably get a nice big push and, and go for the pitch perfect crap. All right, so we like. I have it. a question for you. Um, yeah. I have a real I have a real Ben Platt aversion. Do you think I could still enjoy, but as a big Waiting for Guffman fan and a big Broadway fan, right, do you think I right. can still enjoy this movie? Uh, I, I would, I would say yes, because Ben Platt is an exaggerated version of himself, uh, and so he's meant to be kind of annoying and you know high strung and. Is that, is that the guy from Dear Evan Hansen? Yes, it is. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's the magician guy. Oh no! I, yeah, no. He's the Evan Hansen guy from Pitch Perfect, but he is the dear Evan Hansen guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. So we we don't have much time left on our Sundance segment this year. So real quick, guys, give me uh, a couple other movies that um, you think people might want to keep an eye out for. Cat Person. Oh yeah, Cat Person, based on the New Yorker short story. That's the most popular New York short, New Yorker short story ever, I believe. Really. That's uh, right. I think so, That's right. Yeah, More yeah. popular than the Secret Life of Walter Mitty. That dates me. <laughs> that was New Yorker it, is, it is the one that got it was most viral, and I think became most popular because it was able to be shared so quickly and easily, and yeah. it was right at that Me Too movement, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Cat Person, who and Susanna Fogel, um, a Northwestern graduate, I believe, Sarah. If I'm not, if I'm not, well, yeah. I'm, if I'm not mistaken, uh, made the, made this movie, and so this is like a signature film, really. 
So, so the really controversial thing about the movie, to go through it quickly, is that it tacks a third chapter on to mm. where the story ends. The story ends in this very ambiguous way, with him kind of descending into this toxic mas- masculinity torrent of words uh, via text. And then in the movie, it takes it to this kind of horror movie extreme, mm. where things get violent in the real world. And, you know, to me, it read as, a, you know, a pretty good horror movie, actually. I mean, it seems like yes, this could be an outcome of what happens, you know, when you hook up with a guy like that. But it definitely, I know that it enraged uh, a significant portion of the audience for the story who thought that it wasn't really doing justice to the beautiful ambiguity of the story. But you know what? I feel like the beautiful ambiguity of the story was killed the moment that somebody said, hey, let's make a movie out of this, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I know that I I look forward to a return to you know, massive cat person discourse on, on Twitter. I, I can't wait for that, for, for it to really take off again. I, I long for I've been longing for it. That's what's been well, missing in our lives. Maybe we can start talking about Aziz Ansari again, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, well, all right. All right. All right. So cat, cat person, cat person coming soon to a film forum near you. Uh, and Anything else? Can I pick a, a, a quirky little, uh, um, this is, yeah, all, Sundance, quirky, quirky little, the, yes. The Venn, the Venn diagram of Sundance, documentary, quirky, you know, stylish filmmaking, uh, uh, minorities and uh, trans. Mm. Yeah. Right? Sounds this like is uh, Kokomo yeah. City. Kokomo City. Did you see this? I didn't see this. That's like the one thing I missed that I really wanted it's, to say. It's, it's really fun. It's like 72 minutes, very slight, but it's interviews with trans, uh, black trans sex workers about, you know, what it's like to do what they do. It almost feels like it's a uh, uh, Sean Baker movie. You know, it feels very tangerine. You know, mm-hmm. this, this is the documentary version of tangerine. Yeah. It's already been, it picked, is, uh, it's already been picked up by Ben Shapiro's daily wire film company. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it is so fun. It is so fun and so harrowing and so crazy and wild and really humanizing and, and wonderful. It won uh, one of the audience awards uh, already. It got picked up by Magnolia. So we'll see what, what happens with that. Uh, it is again, it plays well with the crowd. It's so fun. But even if you just watch it on a link, it is hilarious. So I, I, I see big things for that one. All right. Big things for that one. Big things for some of the movies at this year's Sundance. Uh, Stephen, Garrett, Sarah Stewart, thank you for watching movies. Not so we don't have to, but so we can watch more uh, intelligently in the future. And um, next year, we'll, we'll all, let's all meet in Part City next year. We'll, uh, we'll... <laughs> or, or not. We're not. Or just meet online. Yeah. Just meet online. I, I never. I never go anywhere. All right, guys. Thanks so much. All right, thanks. As we're talking, the Oscar nominations came out this week, and the coveted—I guess we'd call it the tenth slot for Best Picture usually goes to a, you know, a quality movie, a smaller quality movie that not many people have seen, but that is critically uh, well-respected and has a lot of merit. And this year, that slot uh, did not go to The Whale, starring Brendan Fraser, as people feared it might, but instead went to Women Talking, which is a movie uh, from Canadian director and, I guess, former actress Sarah Polly, who made The Sweet Hereafter and other excellent films. And uh, Women Talking is out now. I saw it yesterday as we talk, and our uh, new critic, Susie Bright, 
wrote a review of it in Book and Film Globe, and she's here today uh, with to talk about women talking, a woman and a man talking about women talking with me. Hello, Susie. Shocking. Hi, Neil. <laughs> I guess I'm I'm the Ben Wishaw, good good man uh, in 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 this conversation. So women talking women talking is um is about a. Uh, real life incident it's based on a novel about a real life incident that happened in a mennonite community where was this community was it you said it was in bolivia is that right was it or yes or, uh, the mennonites the ukrainian mennonites although they're famous for having landed in the united states and especially in the prairie provinces of canada some of them felt like they were just too close to you know corrupt civilization in north america and many years ago, they started setting up small colonies in the middle of nowhere in Bolivia. And so this is based on a uh, horrific scandal that happened uh, there, uh, not in the relatively recent past. I w- you know, because the Mennonites live such a spare life um, that's basically technology free. I was I was kind of shocked as the movie went on and revealed that, it, you know, it took place in, actually in 2010. Yeah, incredible. No, the film is interesting because we see everyone running around in their bonnets and their, you know, muslin dresses and their non-rubber wheels on their buggies. And you're like, oh, this is a terrifying story about the 19th century. Nope. It just happened the other day. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, it's uh, right up there with the religious cult shockers of the modern age. Yeah. And so basically, you know, without there's no you learn this in the first 10 minutes of the movie. There, it's basically a, a gigantic rape scandal where the men of the colony have been drugging and sexually assaulting uh, the women of the colony and girls of the colony for, for decades without any consequences. And finally, one of them gets caught. And the, you know, the movie is basically what it says. It's women talking about what they should do. Um, yes, and, it's very V.I. Lenin. What is to be done? <laughs> you, get yeah. it, you get it laid out. They have a couple of choices. The men have gone to bail out the perps. And so the women are alone on the farm. And they've been told that they have two days to clean it up and to forgive the men, quote unquote. And they're like, oh, really? Okay, well, I'll just get busy in the next 48 hours. They're trying to decide, do we forgive in the best angels of our faith? Do we stay but not forgive right away? We fight them and we take over this place or... Three, do we leave? Because staying here is untenable. Right. And I mean, fighting doesn't seem like much of an option because the men, you know, they're, they're stronger physically, if not, if not emotionally. So it's, I don't it's, know. You know, when you saw a couple of those women characters lose their shit, I was like, you know, you could have killed them all, couldn't you? You <laughs> could have killed a couple of them. <laughs> yeah, for, for sure. For sure. I mean, these are strong women. Well, all right. So, you know, the movie itself, like it, it, I mean, it is a, it's more of like a, one of these plays in movie form, right? It's a lot yes. of talking and lots of slow character reveals and, and telling moments. And, you know, and it, there's no, it's no accident. I'm kind of surprised, honestly, that Sarah Polly didn't win a, uh, a director uh, nod uh, from the Oscars, but she did get a nod for uh, best adapted screenplay, which makes sense. I mean, this is a very, very writerly film. Yes, and very actorly. This is the kind of thing that anyone in the drama field would look at and go, oh, I would have killed to be part of that ensemble. Yeah. It's great ensemble acting. It's mannered. It's very theatrical. It unfolds like a play. 
And every time we've got dialogue on the screen, you're captivated. Yeah. Uh, what I said in my review is it's those cinematic moments that aren't in the argument and dialogue where you find yourself getting a little, at least in my case, kind of fussy a little. I'm like, am I bored? How can I be bored? This is one of the most outrageous events that's ever happened. That's another one of its strength. The content, the the fact of the matter is so insane. Mm -hmm. You want to see what happens. You know, what what are they going to decide? How are they going to deal with this? And I was telling somebody the other day, it's one of those movies where it's a solid B plus, which compared to most of what is opening wide means it's, it's in the it's in the leadership of the pack. There's so much garbage that you're like a B plus. Thank you. Well, it is, it is a little talky to my mind. And I also feel like it hits kind of the same beats over and over again, um, which make, which doesn't reduce the, you know, it it doesn't reduce the gravity of the situation. You know, I certainly was never even remotely considering walking out. I wanted to, I wanted to see what happened. I was deeply invested in these women and you know, the performances are very emotional, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to have the debate again. I thought we already had this conversation. Uh, you know, I, I, you mentioned the acting. I thought it was very good. And I was, again, I was surprised that not at least, at least one of these performances should have gotten a supporting actor nomination. I mean, uh, well, you know, they're, they're very, it's very tricky with the Oscar folks. Yeah. They look for somebody to hog the camera, yeah. to be the person who gets all the lines. And Polly deliberately wrote this as an ensemble piece so that you would be struck by each person, yeah. but they wouldn't overwhelm it. If anything, sure. it's Wislaw, the one man who's there that catches kind of outsized attention because he stands out and they have him sort of play the pained look of masculine shame. You know, <laughs> Yeah. And he was good. He was good, but I was more struck by performances by, well, Rooney Mara uh, was, was sort right. of the, the lead. She plays a sort of angelic, innocent um, quote unquote spinster who is, is anything but, and then also Claire Foy, and Jesse Buckley, I kind of felt like their characters were in some ways a bit interchangeable, but those are both, you know, they're both excellent actors and those were fine performances. And then the surprise, the surprise, there is the sort of mother superior character, this, you know, very large, physically large and emotionally large character. And I was like, is that actor? And then when I looked at the credits, I was like, oh, wait, that's Judith Ivy. Boy, she has been, right. we haven't seen her in a long time. Long time. No, that generationally, the way this was cast, you had teenagers yeah, uh, girls, uh, the crones, and each one of them so believable. Yeah, really. I mean, you were in many cases. I was puzzling, like I don't recognize them because they're not doing that, you know, star turn they did on the crown, or you know, they're, yeah. they're like they they disappeared inside the material, and that part was superb. I just wanted, I wanted. Um, I wanted them to go further. A more juice. The, just a little more juice, you know? Like, now what, man? That's yeah. that's not the end. And there was that strange moment, I'm trying to think of how to say it without spoiling it, where we see one of the women do something that is ethically challenged herself. And you're like, this is an example of how this kind of cruelty from one generation to the next and from the older to the younger happens again and again and again. And if you constantly say the end justifies the means, this is where you're going to end up. But yeah. we, we don't go there. We, there were, it was as if somebody had just 
suddenly cut off her budget or something. I was like, what happened? Yeah. The, the, it it didn't drop. Women talking to me feels like it's like one of those, like a local theater production that was extremely intense and emotional and everyone worked very hard and had an amazing time and like really, you know, went to the wall for it. But at the end of the day, it still feels like going to see a play, you know, as opposed to like having some, like a, a, ma- a great cinematic experience. Just, just, I mean, is that, I don't know if that's mean to say or not, because it is a good movie, like you said. This is our, this is our job, Neil. We get yeah. to tear these things apart. Yes. In tiny little pieces. But one thing I noticed was when I mentioned to folks, gosh, I went to the theater to see this. Mm. I didn't stream it at home, as is my want. Um, and so every single person I mentioned to locally said, you know what? I haven't been back either. I haven't wanted to like deal with the un- discomfort or the hassle or the worries about my health. And I was thinking, I think I'm going to go to the theater and this is the one I'm going to pick because people, there's a certain kind of a cinema person who is looking something, a plot, a story, good acting, something that appeals to their IQ and women talking just slipped right into that slot. I have a feeling this movie in terms of how the industry regards it, it's going to be thought of as it got people back into the theaters. Well, you know, it's funny you should say that. Well, first of all, I have no um, patience or tolerance for that argument. I've been, I never stopped going to the movies. I've been going to the movies. again. I stopped for six weeks. I went back in May of 2020 and I haven't stopped since. And, uh, you know, I understand people were concerned, but I feel like the danger of movie theaters was grossly overstated. Uh, that said, there were other people in the theater I was in. I went to midday showing uh, here in Austin who were saying, like, I haven't been back for three years. I haven't been back. See what so, I mean? So yeah. regardless of the poly, you know, of what I feel about it, I can feel whatever I want. I can have whatever I can say, whatever I want. The fact is, there are people who are still afraid to go to the movies for no, no particular reason. And it is nice to see kind of quality adult movies like Women Talking coming out in theaters and sort of forcing people to, you know, let go of those COVID era fears and get back to the theater. Exactly. Yes. So women talking in theaters now, go see it in a theater. You won't die. I promise you have, I, I, Susie and I swear it will not kill you to go to this movie. And uh, Susie Bright, uh, we will have you on the show again very soon. All right. It's been great talking to you. Old sitcoms never die. They just come back in one form or another. There are various kinds of sitcom reboots. There's sort of a postmodern reboot style. There's a recasting the sitcom with uh, characters of a different ethnicity. And we also have the genre of sitcom that just comes back, set 20, 30, 40 years later with as many of the same characters uh, who they can find who are still alive. And we have two of those uh, recently re-debuted sitcoms We have Night Court, amazingly enough, Night Court, which went off the air 30 plus years ago, is back on NBC with the same sets and at least one of the same characters. And that 70s show is now that 90s show, but it's really that 70s show. Again, a lot of the same characters, a lot of the same sets, a lot of the same vibe. And uh, these shows are at least people are at least talking about them. I'm not sure if they're watching them. I think they're watching that 90s show. At least that's what my 
Netflix uh, heat report tells me. Anyway, Paula Schaefer watches about as much TV as I do, and she is here to talk to me about these reboots. Hello, Paula. Yes, I am ready to talk about Court at Night. Yeah, so let's start with Night Court. Um, so Night Court was, uh, you know, a very successful show. I, I wouldn't say it was a, you know, an all-time great TV show, but it had its vibe, uh, starring Harry Anderson as a Night Court judge who also did magic tricks. He was very whimsical and quirky and also was well-known for the sparring attorneys in the Night Court played by John Larroquette and Marky Post, although Marky Post didn't actually join the show until the third season. Harry Anderson and Marky Post are both dead, so they can't be in this. John Larroquette, on the other hand, is still alive and is back playing uh, Dan Fielding, uh, his, his Emmy Award-winning role. He won four Emmys for playing Dan Fielding, and uh, he, he is here in Night Court. So, Paul, you've, you've watched at least – I only watched the pilot because it's on Peacock. It's on NBC as well, but I, I haven't been, like, tuning in to NBC to catch the new Night Court. But I saw the, the pilot on Peacock that was offered for free, and you've seen uh, at least one of those episodes, right? Yeah, I watched the first two. I think that new ones come out on Wednesdays, but I uh-huh. didn't watch the third one yet. Yeah, I'll be riveted. I'll be riveted to my NBC to watch the new Night Court. You know, I mean, look, I didn't think it was particularly good, uh, the new Night Court, but, you know, there's there's a sort of a, a comforting feeling. You know, it's like if they somehow, for some reason, started making new episodes of Taxi. <laughs> You know, it's possible. A lot of those actors are still alive. I would watch do it. I would watch that. The struggling taxi company. Yeah, they're except they're all Uber drivers now. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's like okay. I mean, how how is it possible? But you know, here it is, Night Court. And you know what I found interesting about Night Court is you know, I, is that it it seems to be it's set in the present day, right? The judge is now Harry Anderson's daughter, played by Melissa Rauch, who is well known from the Big Big Bang Theory. But it doesn't seem to actually take place in any discernible reality in which we live. No, it's a very vacuum-packed kind of show. Like, if you said, oh, this was made in 1995 and they just unearthed it, I'd say, yeah. Or if you said, oh, this, this happened in 2015, I'd say, okay. It, it's very not of any particular time. Somehow. Yeah, there's no cell phones. There's no the judge's office doesn't even have a computer, you know. Yeah, it's it's very strange for sure. I'm like, what are we doing here? Because you know, and and, it, and it, Night Court was well known for like the wacky parade of like weird clowns and you know street performers or whatever who came through the court. And that doesn't seem to have changed at all. You know, we're not you know, and they're they're mostly white. Even it, it's just it's a kind of a it doesn't really seem to reflect anything. That said, you know, the John Larroquette still has a lot of juice in, in the tank, and Melissa Rauch is cute and, you know, and, and watchable, right? Yeah, and I read that she wanted to do this because to her it's a vaudevillian show, and she likes it that it's, like, wacky and kind of this retro throwback thing, and yet it has heart. It does. So, so I, I guess they're hitting tone i i guess that's where it is it's not horrible it's not necessarily funny or good but it's not 
bad either. It's just kind of there. It's just strange. You know, it has me thinking like, again, like what's, you know, obviously like, you know, the really, and Nightcore was not one of the really good shows from the golden age of sitcoms, right? Like, you know, it's not WKRP in Cincinnati. It's not Cheers. It's not Taxi. You know, it's not one, it's not a show that you're like, yes, it's not, you know, and just 30 years down the road, imagine if in 2013, there had been a sitcom about, let's say, Hawkeye Pierce, you know, right. as an elderly doctor in Maine in the 80s. You know, it's, it's just such a such a strange – our TV environment is so strange that this kind of thing can happen still. Yeah, and there's no way that John Larroquette could even be considered for an Emmy for this kind of work. No. Today. No, it's too corny. Yeah, absolutely. It's too cool. It's, it's too cool. You know, but it's not. This isn't over. They're bringing back Frasier. Yes, I saw that. You know, you know, and I, I would, you know, consider Frasier, you know, in the vast realm of quality sitcoms, to be a much higher level product than Night Court. Yeah, I mean, why don't they bring back the facts of life? Let's see what's happening now in that boarding school. You know, well, what they do is they have these Norman Lear things where, like, they they recreate episodes. Uh-huh. Of, of the facts of life and and they brought back some of the cast but they weren't playing themselves they had other they had more famous actors playing themselves but they did have lisa Wellsell sing the facts of life theme song why do i know this stuff why why do i care why is this in my brain why is night court back i don't get it anyway <laughs> let's move on <laughs> um a, a more interesting and i would say more relevant case is the that 90s show thing that's on netflix now this is this is getting a lot of viewership you know that '70s show is a more recent vintage show than Night Court as well. I mean, that was a that was a show from the aughts that brought a, brought a lot. I was never a big that '70s show fan, but you can't you can't really deny the you know sort of magnetism and star power of the teenage cast that it had. I mean, Mila Kunis, Ashton Kutcher, Topher Grace. I mean, that's a that's a really strong ensemble, right? Yeah, absolutely. I I was never a big proponent of that '70s show either. But I understand why people liked it. Like I saw it enough to go, okay, this is why people like it. It has, it's like well done. The characters are, you know, fully formed. It's goofy. Okay. Well, it was also kind of a, a like a love letter to uh, you know small town Wisconsin, uh, where the creators, clear, you know, it's one of those shows where you know the people who created it aren't like weren't like great. You know, it's not like Norman Lear. <laughs> You know, or like Bud Schulberg or something. They were sort of like great, talented screenwriters, but they got a show made about their childhood and it had a vibe. And, you know, it was like kind of groundbreaking. People were getting stoned on t- on network TV, which hadn't really happened much before. So, but that 90s show uh, takes place, in, you know, in the 90s. And what I find interesting about the show is that it is, it, it really centers on the grandparents, right? Uh, Red and Kitty Foreman who were like foils to the teenagers, but weren't the main attraction. But I feel like they are the, they are the driving force behind the reboot. Yeah. I was surprised by that too. Like, like they're giving them equal footing with the teens, at least if not, like you said, a little bit more. You know, top billing, they got top yeah. billing in the credits and, you know, and these are, I guess were beloved sitcom characters. Right. And, yeah, I'll be damned if they're not funny in this. You know, the whole, the idea that these these grandparents are like having to sort of relive their lives as parents, basically like one of the one of the, you know um, Eric Foreman, Topher Grace's character, and uh, and Laura Prepon's character have a daughter 
who they named Leia, which is kind of a funny conceit because Eric was a big nerd. And she's living with her grandparents for the summer and is now as, as sort of hanging out with a group of quirky, ethnically diverse teens in Stevens Point, whatever it's called, PowerPoint, Wisconsin, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, and, and the grandparents are sort of having to re relive it. And then also, also all the uh, teenage characters from the show, other than uh, rape-accused Danny Masterson, um, are still hanging around in various forms, making cameos, or even more than cameos, sometimes taking control of whole episodes. So it, it's a strange hybrid of like a of a reboot and also like a throwback to the old show. Yeah, and it feels like they had a good idea as to what they wanted to do with it. Like unlike Night Court on that 90s show, they were like, okay, it's going to build on the original this way in an organic ma manner and we'll take these elements that were good and we'll go with that. And yeah, that's and it's kind of what works. And it's genuinely funny at moments. I actually have found myself laughing. You know, maybe and, maybe it's because I'm a cranky old man who also likes a, a good massage chair um, at at this point. But uh, you know, I I found myself think, thinking, all right, this actually makes sense. The one the one real drawback to uh, that '90s show is that the kids are cute, right? But I felt like I was watching like the Wizards of Waverly Place or some Disney, other Disney Plus show. Like there's 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 no there's no Ashton Kutcher in this in this mix. I'm sorry. Yeah, and, and you know maybe they just haven't given them the right stuff to do yet. But there really is not a lot going on with with the younger actors on it. No, it feels like they're. It feels like they were the best people in their high school drama departments. <laughs> you know, like they, they can be on TV and you're not watching them and saying, oh, my God, please stop talking. But at the same time, you're like, there's no extra. And also the just the characters themselves don't feel written in a, kind of an interesting way uh, that the, so the teenage characters in the old one kind of had. They had a little bit more of an edge to them. And that's because the actual actors had more of an edge. So it gave the writer something more to work with. Yeah, and maybe as the writers get to know these people, they'll do more that plays into their natural strengths. But that's the drawback of like the 10 episode season. There's but there's, no need, but there's no need for them to do that, right? Because they have all these adult characters who are so familiar and already established comedy gold. Uh, so you don't, so these other kids are just like, they're just kind of uh, pegs to hang sort of uh, nostalgia gags on. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, there we go, Paula. We have dissected two of the least consequential cultural products of our age, the reboots of Night Court and that 70s show. Um, I suspect that Night Court will um, not make it very far down the path. Um, but that, I think that maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the ratings have been good. It's getting good, it's getting good ratings. I mean, for network TV, good ratings is like 20 people watched it. But it's getting solid ratings. It's uh, maybe, I'm wrong. maybe maybe they'll renew it. I don't know. Maybe they'll renew it. And um, but meanwhile, I, I I predict that that '90s show has not has not seen its last episode. I think that you know a ten ep there's it seems to be quite successful. So this is I don't know. It's a cultural trend that I'm I've got my eye on old 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 TV shows coming back. Nothing's ever going to be as good as Twin Peaks: The Return, though. I didn't watch that, but I believe. Oh that. my God, you missed. The finest television show in human history, as far as I'm, in my opinion. But then again, I'm a snob. What do I know? All right, Paula, thanks a lot. I'll talk to you soon. All right.
All right. Thanks a lot, Paula Schaefer. That 90s show is on Netflix now and will be for a while, maybe forever. And Night Court is airing on NBC if you watch Antenna TV and on Peacock if you're a streaming services person. Also, thanks to Susie Bright for talking about Women Talking, the Sarah Polly-directed, Oscar-nominated film that will be in theaters at least until March when the Oscars uh, appear. And also thanks to Sarah Stewart and Stephen Garrett, our ace film critics, for talking to me about what they saw this year at the Sundance Film Festival. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. I'm so happy to be a host of the show and to have a chance to talk at you every week. We will talk at you soon. You can buy the books discussed on the Book and Film Globe podcast at The Book House, Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to the Bookhouse Milburn, M-I-L-L-B-U-R-N.com to shop online and support small independent booksellers. Or visit our actual physical site in Milburn, New Jersey, where you can buy books from all the authors featured on The Dark Word and the Book and Film Globe podcasts. TheBookhouseMilburn.com. <laughs>